I'm going to start a little beef I have. I just I went to the restroom and heard that when I mentioned that some children are hard to raise, my mother raised her hand over there in signifying that I was a hard kid to raise. What's up with that, mama? Holy cow, she always told me I was an angel until this one moment I find out the truth. Listen, all you people out there were harder to raise than you think. I was a little angel. I don't know what she's talking about. She didn't know anything. Did any of you see the uh, mariachi band that was out here when you came in? Was that not the craziest thing? Some of you are going, mariachi band? What are you talking about? Well, I didn't even know it was happening. I'm walking through the halls of the church. I'm like, do I hear mariachi? And I, I go over there, and there was a band playing, and it was phenomenal. And people all crowded around, roses being given. This is what's so beautiful about being a bilingual church Sometimes it's a party right here in our worship gathering, and it was beautiful. I, I loved it. I was watching, though, all these people, and they didn't have a clue what was being sung because it was all in Spanish, and it didn't matter what language, man. You just heard the music, and you were flocking to that group. And if you got in a little too deep, uh, there was a chance you were like, oh, um, all, everybody here speaks Spanish, <laughs> and I don't. And you started to like, I got to go back to the surface. I got I to gotta pull out because I don't speak the language. I don't, I don't fit in here. It's like you, you just penetrated a little, little too far into the circle and you felt alone. It's this weird thing about how you feel and about connection. Sometimes you could be surrounded by people and feel utterly alone. Ever happened to you before? Maybe you walk into like a new school or a new job or maybe, maybe you're here and this is your first time to come into the church and you are surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of people and you've never felt more alone in your life. There are some of you this morning, you walked in and everybody seemed to know each other. They're shaking hands and they're laughing and hugging and you're just sitting there going, wow, I just thought I'd feel better being around other people and now I feel more alone than ever. It's this weird thing. It's like, you know, like when you don't know you're poor until you get around people who have money and you go, oh, dang, I'm poor. Like that, that's what happens when you come in. You don't even realize how alone you are until you get around a bunch of people and you're like, oh, man, I feel all alone. It's, it's the wildest thing about relationships, connectivity. I interesting that it doesn't matter your proximity to other people. It matters your connection with other people because proximity without connection actually makes you feel lonelier. I think you kind of already understand this concept. If you think about how things work, like take the Bible, it's not proximity to the Bible that makes you learn it. It's connection to its content. That's what changes your life. Not proximity, connection. It's this way in every arena of life. In relationships, it is not proximity to people. It is connection with people that changes your life. And you're going, okay, I'll give that to you, Jason. So what? Why are we talking about this? Because this morning comes on the heels of last week. If you didn't hear last week's message, go ahead and go online, watch it. It sets up the whole sermon series, The Way of the Shepherd. I talked about it. I want to give you kind of the, the brief summary flyby version of last week. I talked about how we, were, we, were, we need to have a shepherd in a community who can watch over us because we have an enemy. Jesus in John 10 talked about the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. This roaring lion who's seeking someone to devour, talking about the devil who's out to get us. And his number one strategy is to isolate us from community and a shepherd, because if he can do that, he can pick us off easily. And I talked about how he'll lie to you and say that you don't need a shepherd, you, you don't deserve a shepherd, you can't find a shepherd. And then I said, some of you need to stop believing those lies, and you need today to decide to get into a group. And by God's grace, 154 people in all our services responded to that call to come get connected to a group last Sunday morning. A hundred of those were right here in this 
service. Praise God. If you were here last week, you saw all the people who came out and then they went and they connected with people immediately. And I've been getting emails of people who are telling me how meaningful it was to have that one-on-one connection. Praise God for those people who are now in community. Even more important, there were hundreds and hundreds of other people who are already in community who maybe were kind of, you know, gotten, get a little busy, not giving it the priority, who finally said, you know what, I need to dig back into my community. I need to dig back into my group because I need to make sure I'm known and I have a shepherd and I have people around me. And praise God, you, you recommitted to your community that you already have. But though that happened last week, hundreds and hundreds of you can show up to group the next week and still feel completely alone. Because remember, it's not proximity, it's connection that matters. Just because you get in a group and you're surrounded by people doesn't mean you're going to be shepherded well. So this morning, I need to teach you not how to get into a group. I need to teach you how to be shepherded. Because there are certain things that you can do to make it easy for your shepherd to shepherd you. And there are things you can do to make it really hard for your shepherd to shepherd you. So if you are in any kind of community, this morning is a how-to. How to be shepherded well. And we're going to learn it entirely from one verse. I want you to open your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It's a New Testament. It's right after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then, then the book of Acts chapter 2. Now, before I jump into the verse, let me go ahead and, and give you the context of Acts 2. This is the birth of the church. It's in a celebration of the Jewish festival of Pentecost. So they're, they're in Jerusalem. It's about 50 days after Jesus has been crucified, put in the tomb, risen from the dead, appeared to the disciples, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and Jesus said, you guys wait for me in Jerusalem until I come in power. And so they're praying in the upper room and all of a sudden, bam, spirit of God descends upon them with tongues of fire. They start speaking all these languages that are international languages that they didn't know on their own. And they're walking around this, this very crowded Jerusalem streets and these mobs of people are coming to see the spectacle. And in that moment, Peter preaches the sermons of all sermons. I mean, he, he preaches his brains out and 3,000 people in one sermon place their faith in Christ and get baptized that one day alone. I want you to, I want to give you a little perspective here. There have been times in, in the services here in the Metro Center over the last year where I've had the privilege of baptizing 20 to 30 people on, on a given Sunday, and it's been phenomenal. And if I'm being honest with you, though, after about 20 or 30, my arms are getting tired. Like, it's, it's, it's a whole thing to go under the water and come out. And they baptized 100 times that amount on one day. 3,000 people when the church was born. And I've, I've been to Jerusalem right there. It's at the steps as you go up to the Temple Mount. And you can see the little places where they would baptize. And it's not that big of an area. I don't even know how long it took them to do that. But 3,000 people and the church is born. And now you have a problem. 3,000 brand new believers. What do you do with them? How do you help them out? Well, that's why verse 42 comes on the verse of verse 41. So in Acts 2, 41, that's when 3,000 people come to faith. And now what do you do with them? You shepherd them. How do you shepherd them? Verse 42. This is the one verse we're going to park on this entire time. Acts 2, 42 says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they, referring to those thousands of new believers, what they did to be shepherded was they devoted themselves to four things. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. Today, we're going to dig deeply into that one verse because it's going to give us the how-to guide. That right there, that one verse is the secret sauce of how God took these country bumpkins from Galilee and transformed them into the revolutionary army that changed the world. 
Four things that they did. So I'm going to start right where the verse starts. It says they devoted themselves to those four things. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. That, that phrase, devoted themselves, is actually a really powerful Greek word. You don't have to remember this, but it's proskartereo. It's, it's a, a word that by meaning, it says devoted themselves, but an, another very accurate translation is they were unrelenting in their attention toward those four things. There's like a fight in it, a tenacity in their attention toward those four things. It's actually, as is often the case, two Greek words that are put together. Pros, which means toward, it's like a direction of activity, and then kartereo, which means to maintain strength in that direction. If you think about the Greek word, you probably don't know it, kratos, it means power, might, force, strength. That's the root of kartereo, maintaining might and strength and power over time, not giving up. When you put proskartereo together, it means maintaining that strength toward a direction. You're going to push and push and push, and you're not going to give up. Every Thursday, I go to Adams Elementary. It's just a little bit down the road over here. Uh, and I tutor, I mentor uh, a young man. And uh, I, I go there, and I sign into the office, and I walk down the hallways to his classroom so I can go mentor my, my little friend. Branjet is his name. And every time I'm walking through the hallway in Adams Elementary, there's, there's these signs that come up on the wall, and there's these football players, and they're, like, lifting this guy up. And it has the acronym PUSH, P-U-S-H. And it says persevere until something happens. Like that's, that's what that word proskartereo means. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to press. I'm going to keep on going until something happens. I'm going to push and push and push. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how tired I am, no matter how inconvenient it is, I'm going to keep on going in this one direction. So when it says they devoted themselves, it doesn't mean that they, you know, they were pretty disciplined. It means they were working. There was, a, there was an activity and a passion and a strength toward these four things. There is no passivity allowed in that kind of verb, proskartereo. Now, this is why this matters to you. When you look at these four words, you've got to define them, these four things that they were supposed to give unrelenting attention to under that idea of force and power toward these four things because it'll affect the way you understand them. So let's take the first one. They gave unrelenting attention, force and power toward the apostles' teaching. That, that first thing is really just about saying, learning the scriptures. When it says the apostles' teaching, in our modern context, that would be referring to the New Testament. Remember, back then they didn't have the New Testament. They were writing the New Testament as they were receiving it from the Lord. And the apostles, at the beginning, would just have to teach them what they saw in Jesus and how to interpret it through the power of the Holy Spirit. But now we have it recorded in our New Testament. And so when it says that they dedicated themselves, they, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, for us, it would be devoting ourselves to the Word of God, giving unrelenting attention to the New Testament and the Old Testament, which shows us why the New Testament has meaning. So we give strength and power, unrelenting attention to the Word of God. That's where we start. Now listen, I, I want to go ahead and tell you, uh, for those of you, how many of you have a community group or a discipleship group? Raise your hand if you have that. Okay, there's a lot of you who have one. Let me go ahead and tell you, I can almost guarantee you, every single one of your groups, if you do anything, you study the Bible. That, that's what you do. It's the, it's the one thing we actually do fairly well around here. We, in, in a Christian, American Christianity, we're going to put attention on the Bible. 
especially evangelical circles. We, we want to make sure the book is learned and known. Praise God for it. We should have that kind of attention on the Word of God. But I want to go ahead and, and reinforce what I said earlier. That word, they devoted themselves, proskartereo, is not passivity, it's activity, which means you don't get to passively receive teaching and think you're accomplishing what this is saying. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I wonder how many hands would go up if I said, how many of you week after week after week receive teaching and that's about it? You sit under a teacher and you might even take notes, but it's passive. You are being taught. It's not active. There's not a force. There's not a power behind it. If that's where you are, that's not really fulfilling. It's just because you're learning something. In fact, you're in grave danger. And here's the danger. The danger is you could become a flaming hypocrite because you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do any of it. That's a grave danger with a bunch of people who have their heads filled with knowledge of the Word of God because we will be held accountable for what we know even if we don't do it. And so there's another thing that you have to couple together with that openness to learning, which is the first ingredient, you know, that dedication to the apostles' teaching. The second thing you have to be open to is accountability. There's a gap right now that every single one of you has between what you know and what you obey. And the shepherd's job is to decrease that gap for you to begin to obey more of what you actually know you ought to be doing. It doesn't matter what knowledge level you have. If you have a PhD behind your name because you've studied the scripture so much or you have just come to faith in Christ and you're barely learning who Jesus is, it doesn't matter how high or low your knowledge level is, there is a gap between what you know and what you obey. And you need somebody to help you close in that gap. That's actually what the next two things we're talking about back in chapter 2, verse 42. First thing it said, like I said, was you had to dedicate, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The next two they devoted themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread. Now, those two things, they sound like they're referring to the same thing. And I'm going to go ahead and argue they are. It's just not referring to what you think of. So we're going to have a little participation here. I want to hear from you. When you hear fellowship and the breaking of bread, what's the first thing that comes in your mind? Food. Absolutely. We're going to get some fried chicken. And we're going to have a meal together. And the reason why it's because most of you grew up in evangelical churches where like you ate a fellowship meal in a fellowship hall. And the word fellowship means food. That's all, that's all it means. We're going to have some fellowship. I love me some fellowship. I want some fellowship, which means pass the chicken. That's, that's what it means. But that is not the biblical word that's used right there. It's not pass the chicken. It's not food. It's koinonia. And koinonia has nothing to do with food. Koinonia is a sharing of life with somebody else, to be a fellow partaker of somebody else. Inherent in the, the term koinonia isn't sharing a meal, it is sharing your life in the most vulnerable of ways. If you want to see what koinonia really looks like, flip over a couple, a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 4. You're going to get a glimpse of koinonia, and you're going to notice it's not centered around food. It's centered around vulnerability. Acts 4, verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. That everything in common, that's the koinonia, the, the, the fellowship, the sharing of everything. Then it moves on. 
and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There wasn't a single poor person among them because of two things happening, and both of them are pretty miraculous. The first one, you had radical generosity, people selling their own homes, selling their fields, taking all that money, laying it at the apostles' feet and saying, meet needs as they come. That's beautiful. That's typically where we stop when we think about the miracle of it. But there's a second miracle in this. And it's the miracle that those who were needy actually opened up about their need. They didn't try to hide it. They said, I'm in need. Would you help me, please? Listen, if, if I were being honest with you, as a church, I think that'd be a greater miracle among you than it would be being radically generous. There's a lot of very generous people in this church. They give week in and week out. You, you love to be a part of giving the, the resources God has given you to compel the, the cause of Christ around the world. But there are so many of you that though you're generous with your funds, you're stingy with your vulnerability. You won't open up to other people about where you're hurting. So, okay, I got, I got to be honest with you. As a pastor of this church, one of the things that upsets me the most is that it always feels like when somebody comes to me for counseling, it's too late. People don't bring it to me until they're in dire circumstances. Like, she's already passed the divorce papers. Now I need to meet with you, Pastor Jason. What do I do? I'm already getting evicted. I got to move out. I've got three days. What do I do? My kid has already gone to the far country and destroyed themselves on drugs and, and alcohol. And I don't know what to, what do I do? And every time I have these conversations with people, I always ask, especially because many of them are in community somewhere in their church. And I said, well, have you told your group about this? And with great pain in my heart, I hear over and over and no, no I just, I didn't want to be a burden to them. And I just, I'm going to say this. Sometimes I can be a little too direct and I know that, but I got to be direct. That's a bunch of bull. It's not about you not wanting to be a burden. It's pride. I don't want people to look down on me because of my brokenness. And therefore, I don't want to share it. And pride keeps us from being vulnerable while we're surrounded by the people who could help us. Pride will destroy vulnerability. And vulnerability, when you don't have it, will destroy koinonia. But listen, I understand why you don't want to do it. I mean, I get it. I'm, I'm there with you. The moment I'm vulnerable, people are going to know who I really am, and they're going to think lowly about me. I got a lot of dirty laundry up in here, and I don't know if I want you all knowing it. There, there's a side to that that scares me because I know what you're going to think about me. And you might call me out on it, and I don't know if I can handle it. That's how you feel too. But the greatest gift you could be given is somebody calling you out when there's sin in your life. That's actually what the second part was referring to. When it said the fellowship, koinonia, and the breaking of bread... That second one is not referring to breaking bread as in we're having a meal together. That is actually referring to the Lord's Supper. That phrase, breaking of bread, used in the New Testament is almost always referring to the taking of the Lord's Supper. They were partaking of the sacred meal, remembering the body of Jesus Christ that was crucified for them and the taking of the cup to remember the shed blood of Jesus. And let me tell you about the Lord's Supper. It is intended to be a reminder of accountability that if you have sin in your life, you need to deal with it. 
There are two reasons why we take the Lord's Supper every single week. Some of you, maybe you wonder why we do it every single week. Two main purposes that come straight from 1 Corinthians 11. I'm not going to go long-term into this. I just want you to understand them. The first one, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns every single time we take the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul tells us that directly. And we do it through the elements. The piece of bread, we'll do it at the end of the service. It represents the body of Jesus Christ that was, that was put on a cross, that was pierced that was trans, that because of my transgressions, that was crushed because of my iniquities. And we remember what Christ did. Then we take the cup and we remember that it's the perfect blood of the Lamb of God that takes away my sins, not my own effort. And I'm brought right back to the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over when I do it. So every week we want to remember the gospel. But that's only the first part of it. The second thing the Lord's Supper is intended to do every single week is to be a soul heart check to see if you are at a right state to be able to take the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 also says you should not take the Lord's Supper lightly or you can eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Meaning, if I have sin, known sin in my life that I'm not confessing, if I'm at odds and not reconciled with a brother or sister and I go before the Lord and act like that's not there, I can eat and drink judgment upon myself because I'm not checking my heart. We take it every single week so that this Sunday you may go, I I'm not able to take the Lord's Supper. I've got sin I've got to deal with and you have a whole week to deal with it so when you come back next week, you can take it. It's a chance for you to check the condition of your heart every single week. It's accountability before God. But let me go ahead and tell you, you may have a heart check moment. You may not take the Lord's Supper this week, and you can come back next week, and you're still going to be not able to take the Lord's Supper because you haven't dealt with your sin in the next week and the next week and the next week, and you're not going to have time in this service to deal with your sin. Do you want to know when you deal with it? You deal with it when you get together with your community who has a shepherd that you know and love who holds you accountable. That's when you have the opportunity. You have a person that you trust that's going to love you that you say, listen, here's my sin. It's James chapter 5. If any one of you has sins, let them confess it to one another so that person can pray over them and they can be healed. We're not going to do that in this service. You're going to do that in your community with a shepherd. And that shepherd wants to give you accountability. You just got to be open to it. Accountability is the gift that no one wants and everyone needs. There's not a single person in here who really, really, really wants hard accountability, including this pastor up here on this stage. But every one of us needs it, including this pastor up here on this stage. I love the scriptures because sometimes they're just brutally honest with us about the brokenness of some of our spiritual leaders. And I want you to think about Peter for a moment. Peter is the pillar of the early church, the rock, the one who preached and 3,000 came to salvation. There came a time in his life when he had to be called out and held accountable by another apostle, the apostle Paul. I want you to keep your place in Acts 2, and if you're fast enough, jump over to Galatians 2, verse 11. The apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Galatia, and he gives us a little snippet of when he had to hold Peter accountable. 2.11, here's what it says. But when Cephas, by the way, Cephas is just another name for Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So he comes up in front of Peter, the pillar of the church, and calls him out in front of everybody. You're being a hypocrite, Peter. You're acting one way because James and his buddies came and now you're afraid 
And so now you're being a hypocrite. Here's what's so crazy about this. Peter, at the end of his life, looked back at that moment with great joy and grace. He's called out publicly, publicly shamed by Paul. But at some point in his life, he realizes it's the very gift he needed. I want you to flip over again, if you can do it quick enough, to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I want you to listen. Now, this is toward the end of Peter's life. Listen to how he talks about his brother Paul, the one who called him out. Verse 15 of 2 Peter 3 says, And count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Listen to what he just said. Peter just said, the things that Paul writes are on the same level as the other scriptures. He has such an esteem for Paul that he calls his writing scripture. And he calls him my beloved brother, Paul. This is the same one who publicly called out his sin. And at the end of his life, he said, Paul, thank you. I love you. You're a brother. I don't know how long it took Peter to get to that place, but at some point he got to the realization that he needed that. He needed to be called out by his brother Paul. It was a gift. Bitter when he swallowed it, but sweet in the stomach. This is exactly what you need. You need that gift. Now, I want to take a little, little bunny trail here for a moment. I want to talk to those of you who are leaders, shepherd leaders. And I want to say that just because you have a community of people doesn't mean you have accountability in your group. There are some of you who have on-campus groups or off-campus groups that are 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 people, and there's no way you can have genuine accountability with 40 people in a room. No one's going to go, all right, everybody, raise your hand if you got sin. Go ahead and confess it in front of the whole group. No one's going to confess it in front of 40 people. you got to come to a place where you break your group up into smaller pockets where genuine accountability can happen. Even if it's just 10 people in a home group, you may just say, okay, Five men over here, five ladies over here. If it's all men, all ladies, you break it up into three to five people where they can have genuine, heartfelt accountability. And your job as a shepherd is to ensure that your community has those pockets. We even have accountability questions that we'll pass to you so that you know how to do this accountability. But you need to make sure it's happening because your job is to give them the gift of accountability, whether it's you or somebody else who can function in that way. And your job, if you're one of the participants in the group, is to say, I'm open to it. First two parts, I'm open to lifelong learning. I'm open to accountability. Third thing that you need to have if you want to be shepherded well is you need to be open to being taught how to pray. That's, that's what it was saying back in Acts 2, 42, when it ended up on the, the fourth part of it. Go back to Acts 2. It said, and they devoted themselves. Remember, they pressed into unrelenting attention to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the breaking of bread. And the fourth thing, and the prayers. It sounds a little rugged in the ESV and the prayers. It sounds awkward. It sounds like it'd be better to say, and they devoted themselves to prayer. But there's a reason why they put the definitive article in there. It's because it's in the Greek. And the reason it's in the Greek is because what it's referring to is not individual prayer. It says the prayers because it's talking about the collective prayers of the people of God. When they would gather together every time they would pray. You've got to remember, too, these are Jewish people, and they had Jewish prayers they would do collectively. All these new people needed to be taught how to pray. And here's the thing about prayer. The only way to, to learn how to pray is by praying. You can read a thousand books on prayer and not get any better at prayer. You can go to conferences and seminars about prayer and not get any better at prayer. The only way to learn how to pray is by praying. 
And the only way to really learn how to pray is to pray with people who actually know what they're doing. It's this mentorship of gathering together and a shepherd investing in you as you pray together. I haven't met a single person yet who doesn't want to know how to pray more effectively. I'm just curious, in this room, how many of you would love to know how to pray in a way that moves the heart of God? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, there's a few of you. I don't know what's wrong with you. But the vast majority of you, you want to know how to pray because you would love to think that when you pray, God would move in miraculous power. You believe he's got that kind of, of power. The problem is you don't know how to pray. You would love to grow in that. Well, the way that you grow is by praying. And the way that you grow in prayer is by having a shepherd who can do this with you and instructs you in this. This is exactly what Peter did in the Bible. When he wanted to teach them to pray, he gathered them together in houses and he prayed with them. In fact, he did it so frequently that whenever he got in trouble, like a knee-jerk reaction, the house prayer just started to happen. The people got together at a house and began to pray. I want you to flip over to the book of Acts chapter 12. Almost done here. Acts chapter 12. At this moment, there's a guy named King Herod, and he's trying to make a point by stamping out the Christian movement. And so he takes Peter and he arrests him. And I want you to see what the disciples did immediately. Knee-jerk reaction, verse 5. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when it says to the, by the church, that's referring to the house church. They, they would meet in homes and they would pray. And they did this because every time Peter gathered together the church, he would instruct them on how to pray. But what I love about this is you also get a glimpse at how bad they are at prayer. These guys are not prayer gurus. They're learning how to pray. In fact, here's what happens. They gather together. They're praying. God answers their prayer, sends an angel to free Peter from jail. Peter thinks he's in a dream as he's walking out of jail. And all of a sudden, he comes to his senses and realizes, holy moly, I've been set free. And he goes to the house where they're praying. We're going to jump back in in verse 12. Listen to what happens. It says, when he realized this, talking about Peter, that he'd been set free, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, I love this, you are out of your ever-loving mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, hello, somebody. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. So here they are, they're praying, asking God to liberate Peter. God does what they say, and they go, nah, ain't no way God actually did what we asked. That sounds like the kind of prayer gathering we would have, you <laughs> know, just praying over something, and holy moly, he healed somebody. We're praying, and we don't even believe God's going to do it, and yet God does it anyway. I hope this gives you a lot of solace. It's not the size of your faith that matters. It's the size of the God in whom you believe that matters, and he can answer these kinds of prayers. And he does. These people were learning how to pray, but the way they were learning how to pray is because Peter just kept investing in them. Every time they gathered together, they would spend some time in prayer. And you just need to be open to that, too. If you want to be shepherded well, to say, when we gather, I'm not just going to sit back and be passive. Remember, all these words are active. I'm going to participate. I'm not going to let the, the really good praying people pray. I'm going to jump in and pray, too, because I want to learn how to pray. We do it collectively. And those are the three things. That's the secret sauce. If you want to know how to be shepherded well, you've got to be open to learning. You've got to be open to accountability. And you've got to be open to being taught how to pray. And when those three things come together, 
you will be shepherded well. My question for you is, how many of you really have that kind of relationship with your group and with your shepherd? Because again, I'm going to venture to say most of you don't. Those three things aren't present. And I'm not here to condemn you for that. I'm, I'm here to challenge you to step into what God has for you because there's more he wants to do in you. And when these three things come together, that's when the power is released. But there's something keeping you from it. And I want to tell you what that something is. That something is fear. I know there's a lot of men in here, and you go, I ain't, I ain't afraid of nothing. I know you don't think you're afraid, but you are. What you're afraid of is being found out. You're afraid that if you go into a group and you actually get vulnerable and you present all your junk, people are going to realize how screwed up you really are. They're going to turn their backs on you, and they're going to walk away from you. Your fear will make you want to hide. It'll do it every single time. This is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. If you know the story of the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, and what's the first thing they do? I, I want to hear. What's the first thing they do when they, they sin? They hide. Immediately, they hide. Why? Because when you have sin and you're aware of it, it makes you afraid, and when you're afraid, you run and hide. It's the same thing that happens to us. When we get afraid, we run and hide. We don't want people to really know what's inside. And so instead of actually connecting with the people around us, we just settle for proximity. And we wonder why we're not changing. It's because we're afraid. But here's what I want to tell you. There is something that can take away that fear. And that fear is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what the gospel says. The gospel says you are so screwed up. The father had to send his own son to take on flesh to live the, the sinless life you didn't live, I didn't live. He died on a cross to pay the penalty of our sin and rose from the dead. And it says in Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, that is some really good news. He didn't say, now get yourself all cleaned up, fix all your brokenness and problems, and then come to me and I'll take you. No, his love says that while you were still jacked up, while your life was in shambles, he loved you and came to you and saved you. Praise Almighty God. But when you believe that message, here's what it means. It means that if God can know all your junk, and I mean all your junk, and still love you, so can God's people. You don't have to be afraid. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Your sin has been washed away, past, present, future. You don't have to hide anymore. You can take it before God. And the moment you stop hiding, that's when you experience this kind of connectivity. I think God wants to liberate you from your fear, and he wants to do it this morning. So before we talk about getting into groove and getting a shepherd, I want to make sure that every single one of you has come to genuine faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe there are some of you who are here this morning, maybe some of you watching online right now, and you are trapped in fear. Fear is the devil's tool. It is the number one thing he, use, he uses to keep you enslaved. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. It's the fear of death that keeps us enslaved to him all of our lives. But Christ died to free us from the fear of death so we would no longer be slaves of, of the enemy. But he wants to use fear constantly. And the only way to overcome that is to be owned by Christ and not let him wield that tool any longer. When we have no condemnation, we have no fear. And when the enemy tries to bring fear up inside of us, we can say, get away from me. You don't get to tell me what to do. I know who I am. When you come before God exposed, you don't hide. You say, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I am 
I am wrecked and I don't have to hide it any longer. Oh, Jesus, come forgive me of my sins. Come save me. You've come to me while, while I'm in my sin. I give myself to you. And when you do that, all the condemnation is gone. All the sin is washed away. And now you have the opportunity to be vulnerable and open and unafraid. I believe there may be some of you today who need to take that step of faith. Listen, every Sunday we warm this baptistry up here on this stage. And the reason we warm it up is because there's a chance there are some of you who are here who need to take a step of faith and be baptized. The, the, this guy, this deacon named Philip, is, is walking by, taken by God to go beyond a carriage with this eunuch in it who's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip goes up into the carriage with him and explains to him the gospel of Jesus. And this eunuch says, look out the window, there's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip says, there's no reason not to, come on. And they went out there and he placed his faith in Christ publicly and was baptized right there in front of Philip because he wanted his life settled in Christ. We have this baptistry warmed up because there may be some of you who are like the eunuch where God is moving in your heart and you're no longer afraid and you're going to say, I'm ready. And we wanted to be ready for you. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come down, to let one of us, we're going to have prayer team members down front. We're going to grab hands with you. We're going to pray with you. We're going to take you over to counsel with you to make sure you understand the gospel. And if you're ready, we got shorts, we got t-shirt you can put in. And before you leave church today, you can stir the waters. Nothing will make mama happier than watching you declare your faith in Jesus Christ. If you need to do that, today is the day for you to make that decision. But before I open it up, one last thing I want to say. There are some of you in this room right now, and you're already, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You've, you've been baptized. You follow the Lord in that. But there are things in your life that make you afraid. Maybe, maybe there's a health issue that you or someone you know and love is going through and you're just, you're afraid. Maybe there's a financial situation. You're afraid. There's a relationship issue. There's something that's out of your control, something at work, whatever it is, and you're afraid. What do you do when you're afraid? You pray. That's what you do. What did the disciples do when they were afraid because Peter was incarcerated? They gathered together and they prayed. And that's when the miracle came. Well, here's the gift we have today. We can turn this worship service into a prayer gathering today. All you got to do is bring your knees before us. I want to invite you to stand up right now. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come down front and be ready. If today you need to pray, miracles can happen. We're just going to join our faith with yours and pray over you. We need to let this be a house of prayer today if you need it. And if today you're saying, I'm ready, I'm not going to let fear stop me, and fear will try to stop you. I'm not going to let it stop me from coming forward. I'm going to come today to declare my faith in Christ because I need his power. You come. The baptistry is waiting for you, but you got to come. So you respond as you need to. The Lord's waiting.